The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. reading 1 Peter chapter 3, the end of that chapter beginning at verse 18. Some things that I warn you are a little bit of a confusion to some people as Peter sort of turns on a dime. I, I likened it in the first service to a running back on a football team, that, that great running back you want that can appear like he's going to the left and all of a sudden, boom, on a dime he's over here and then he's over here. That's what it seems like Peter's doing here, changing the subject. And some people just read this passage and scratch their heads. Martin Luther was one, believe it or not. Luther, who never suffered for having a mild opinion on anything, wrote about this passage, I don't know what this passage means. That was Martin Luther. So maybe I shouldn't preach. But I think God has given us some light to understand this passage. So listen. The first Peter 3, beginning at 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. May God be the one who gives us light on this, his own holy word. Almost 20 years ago, I think it was 18 to be exact, I investigated in advance a television miniseries that was advertised. Whenever something like this comes up and the Bible is the subject, I know I'm going to be asked about it. So even though I know I'm probably not going to be entertained by it, I think I better find out what kind of a treatment this is going to be of the Word of God. It was a mini-series, I think it was just titled Noah's Ark. Uh, If you don't remember it, uh, that's good because it wasn't worth remembering. But the producers of this short series had an on-screen disclaimer at the beginning of it which said this, I wrote it down, for dramatic effect we have taken poetic license with some events of the mighty epic of Noah and the Flood. End quote. Poetic license, indeed. This farce actually placed the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah as happening simultaneous to the lifetime of Noah, even though, biblically, those events are about a thousand years apart. A producer said in an interview with a reporter about this series, I quote again, 
you can take a bit of freedom with the Old Testament, especially Genesis, since who knows how it happened? Well, they didn't know how it happened. I'm not sure why they dared to try to tell the story. It was a blend of cheap soap opera and a ludicrous reinterpretation of Noah. The historic account of Noah happened as Scripture reported it. The salvation of one family of eight members from destruction by floodwaters, whether they were worldwide waters or not, I'm not prepared to debate you. They certainly covered a great area. It is both a true event and a symbolic lesson, as the rest of the Bible refers back to Noah's experience, about how God's salvation is offered. God saved Noah and his family. And it is compared, as it is here in this passage, to the salvation that God offers through Christ as a grand symbol, prefigurement of what God did in Christ to save people. Now, this is a complex passage, I will admit. And I can understand Luther kind of throwing up his hands and saying, I can't sort it out with any real certainty, although others certainly have felt they could and did. Some people have based very fanciful and false doctrines on this text. And on the surface, it is indeed hard to interpret, or at least surprising. It contains a couple surprising twists and turns, especially at how baptism is suddenly put into the picture. But here we have a symbolic remembrance of an ancient salvation being compared to the current day salvation offered to us in Jesus Christ. My first point is very short this morning, and I would say that I want you to fasten on verse 18 if you're looking at your Bible, because if you will keep 18 in mind as the main thesis and realize that Peter is simply expanding on that main thesis in the rest of the passage, you won't get quite as lost. That thesis is this. Christ suffered once for sins, or once for all, as one translation says, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. If I have a label on my first point, it's this. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Here in verse 18, Peter, the author who knew Jesus in the flesh quite well, is saying, I want you to think of what God accomplished through Jesus, both in his flesh as he died and was raised, and by the Spirit of God as he ministered throughout the history of the gospel, beginning in Old Testament days down to the present hour. Scripture teaches us that Jesus Christ existed even before the creation of the earth. John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and we know that is Christ, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and without Him nothing was made that has been made. Christ is eternal. He was at work in the creation. He was. We heard the choir's wonderful anthem, the power of the creation. Christ was active in that. Hebrews 13.8 says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He was operating in an active way to create the terms of salvation long before his body came into being in Bethlehem and he went to a cross and died for us. He was speaking, this says, even through 
the Old Testament prophets, and that is testified in other places in the Scripture. Peter says he was put to death in the flesh. That's the part we think of that Jesus did. But he was alive in his spirit, and that was true even before he was put to death in the flesh. So we're looking at rather an eternal view of Christ and his work here. You need to remember that as a quick first point. Secondly, we'll plunge right into the confusing part. Verses 19 and 20. And here's a banner headline I'll put over this that may help you. I hope it will. Peter is telling us this. Jesus Christ preached to the living neighbors of Noah who are now in hell. Jesus Christ preached to Noah's living neighbors who are now in hell. That sounds like a strange thing, but that's what it's saying. Through the Spirit, Christ went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. What is this, people say? Who are these people? What's this prison? What did Jesus preach to them, and when did he do it? I have to erase for you what I believe very firmly is a wrong understanding that is sometimes taught out of this text, and that is the concept that people will teach that this is the Spirit of Christ somehow, who of course he was alive even when he was in the grave, his soul did not die, and they say between the cross and the resurrection in that silent couple of days on Easter weekend, the Spirit of Jesus went and preached to spirits either of men or angels or somebody in hell. And they take that from a phrase that we say in the Apostles' Creed that Christ descended into hell. People say, well, when did he do that? I'm asked this all the time by people that aren't familiar with the Apostles' Creed. And they always say, I wish you'd preach sometime on Jesus descended into hell. I've preached at least five sermons that subject since I've been in this church. But somebody says, I wish you'd preach on that sometime. We do not think he descended into hell, which, by the way, wasn't in the original version of the Apostles' Creed. It was added. We do not think that that refers to some preaching trip to hell that Jesus made while in his grave before resurrection morning. It doesn't make sense according to any other scripture. It simply doesn't. It doesn't coordinate with anything. It seems to arise more from the Middle Ages view of purgatory, the doctrine which was developing at that time, the idea that people are held in some kind of a, a prison, and even now that's supposedly where you go, uh, and, and somebody makes up their mind that you get enough good behavior to get out. Nonsense. Not taught anywhere in the Bible. I'm sorry if you grew up in a church that taught you about purgatory. They taught you error. It is not in the Bible. Try to find it. You won't. I guarantee you. Calvin, we believe, got the idea of a descent into hell correctly when he said Jesus experienced hell in his soul on the cross as he became the sin-bearer and met his horrified soul knew what sin was, certainly, because he was the Son of God, and yet he knew it in terms of confrontation with all of its awful dimensions as if it was his, when in fact it was ours. That's what he descended into hell means, what happened to Christ on the cross. It wasn't some kind of a second-chance 
preaching errand that he made to speak to people condemned so that maybe they could have a second chance or maybe they could somehow get out of purgatory. No, sir. does not mean that. If it does, this is the only place the Bible teaches it. And the Bible is consistent in its doctrine. You begin to see what 319 does mean when you realize that the spirits in prison were not in prison when they were preached to by Christ. They're in prison now, but Christ preached to them when they were living men in the time of Noah. Read the text in the light of that knowledge, and you'll see it makes perfect sense. And yet people don't always see that. These were people who scoffed at Noah. Bill Cosby did a great, I guess it's not politically correct to mention his name anymore, but when he was a young comedian and genuinely funny, I had a recording, I think it was a a nightclub act or something that Cosby did about Noah a long time ago, back in the 60s. And uh, it was funny, you know, I, I don't really like the idea of the Bible being a subject of comedy, but Cosby was giving the different voices, you know, God speaking to Noah, Noah speaking back to God, and and then in the midst of it, a guy wandered out, and it was Noah's neighbor who said, you want to get that thing out of my driveway? Well, we have a good time laughing, perhaps, about what Noah's neighbors might have done or said or reacted, but we know basically their reaction was unbelief. Go and read Genesis account. Noah was mocked. He was a fool. What are you doing? All these, all these months, all this building material, all this incredible work. God told you to build a boat on dry ground? You're crazy, Noah. That's the point that's trying to be made here. Noah preached to his neighbors, told them what God had called him to do. They laughed. And now here's Peter in the New Testament saying, It was the Spirit, the living Spirit of Jesus Christ who was speaking through the the voice of Noah. He was the voice of Old Testament prophecy. There are other passages that uh, say that. 1 Peter 1.11, an earlier text in this letter says, the Spirit of Christ instructed the Old Testament prophets. And again, a a reference from Peter. 2 Peter 2.5 calls Noah a preacher of, of righteousness. So this is a consistent concept that Peter is writing, saying it was actually Jesus speaking salvation by the grace of God, even in an ancient time like that, where you wouldn't think of him being in that context. Jesus was teaching Noah to preach and say, God, and only God can save you. Respond to him, obey him, and you can be saved. But nobody listened in Noah's day. Therefore, these are people who now, the Scripture says, are awaiting in condemnation, in prison. The implication is they are dead spirits, somewhere held for final judgment, but they don't have a hope of eternal life at all. Now, you're saying... Well, what does this mean in the light of, why, why does Peter bring this up here? What, what point is he making? How does this fit into the whole theme of First Peter, and, and how does it speak to us? Well, you remember that Peter has been writing to people who are persecuted. Some of them had lost jobs. They were mocked. They were under derision of others, and Peter kept telling them, live good lives so you can't be faulted for your morality. 
and, and uh, you know, just you will stand out in the crowd as, as people of righteousness. Well, isn't that exactly the same situation that Noah had? Living under the derision of his neighbors, persecuted. And Peter says, was Noah at some great disadvantage? No. As a matter of fact, the Spirit of Jesus Christ was preaching through him as he spoke to his persecutors, who later would be these dead and imprisoned souls. He boldly spoke the truth in his own generation, and God honored that and used that in the long term. And that's exactly what Peter was exhorting Christians to do in this letter called 1 Peter. It's the same gospel, you see, from Old Testament times to New Testament times. Rebellious mankind mocks the gospel even when it's the voice of Jesus Christ preaching through an Old Testament prophet. It certainly expands my concept of the saving work of Christ to think Christ was giving out his gospel in Noah's day, and it was being disbelieved. And doesn't it expand, if I can extrapolate that and bring it forward to the present, to say, here I am, I'm nobody, I'm not an Old Testament prophet, I would never claim the the terminology prophet, but yet as I speak to you, because I'm speaking from the inspired Word of God, I can dare say to you this bold thing. Not because of who I am, and in fact, entirely irregardless of who I am, but Jesus Christ is speaking from this pulpit. If I speak His gospel and his way of salvation, the same as for Noah. God would use my weak, meaningless, disreputable voice as a megaphone to speak salvation to you. That, okay, blows my mind. How could I be the voice of Christ? That's what the Scripture says. And it says that unbelief is the same hard-headed reality And believers are the same persecuted minority with their message of Christ back in Noah's day and all the way forward into our day. It's the same dynamic at work. Christ was Noah's Savior, Noah's voice of prophecy, and his message will be vindicated in the end. Now, thirdly, if you go to the last couple verses of this passage, once again, Peter takes... I just have that picture of the running back who can change direction. You know, you can't even believe his body could stop on a dime and he could turn in the opposite direction. But that's kind of what Peter does here in verse 20. I know as as I read this still, as I read it for you a few minutes ago, the word baptism leaped right off the page at me. I go, wait a minute, what? Baptism? We weren't talking about baptism. How did that get here? And here's the only place, by the way, in the, in the Bible as a whole or the New Testament where in the same sentence the subject and the verb are these. Baptism saves. Look high and low. You won't find anywhere else in the entire Bible that it says baptism saves. Well, wait a minute, Pastor. You just denied that before you baptized a beautiful little girl here this morning. You just denied that baptism actually saves. Is it possible that we can understand that Peter is speaking the word save more metaphorically or symbolically than literally. Well, indeed it is, and I'll tell you why, because it says so right in this verse. Baptism saves you not in the way you're thinking as an immediate physical removal of some kind of dirt from your body. 
but it saves as an appeal, a symbolic appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism doesn't physically save anyone. That is a horrible truth that the Bible does not teach, and yet many, many Christian churches will somehow work their way circuitously around to get to that and say, ah, you're baptized, so you're saved. No, sir. Baptism is a symbol, and Peter spells it out here as a symbol. He's saying this baptism today, which I believe he's talking in this case about a believer's confessing baptism, not a child baptism, corresponds to the idea of you appealing to God and saying, Christ is my Savior, Christ is my Lord, I look to his resurrection for eternal life. And in that sense, when you come then to be baptized, appealing that, you indeed are showing evidences of the saving grace of God at work in you. This epic event of Noah passing through the floodwaters and his neighbors scoffing at him is claimed by Peter as being a symbol of our deliverance from the wrath of God by faith in Christ. You know, the water is the thing that is viewed as a threat because if the neighbors didn't get in the ark, the water killed them. But if they got in the ark, the water saved them. It was the water that buoyed up the ark and caused Noah and his family to be saved. Yes, the logic is a little complicated here, we will admit, in this passage. But it seems, if we accept the premise that Peter is a man who makes sense, he's not spouting nonsense, that he's saying your profession of faith, your coming under the water of baptism is very much a similar experience that Noah and his seven family members experience when they were saved from the disaster of being drowned and buoyed up by the water in the ark of Jesus Christ. He's saying we too can pass through the waters of God's judgment and be saved. Not as an outward act that just somebody says, aha, I I went on down to the church, here's my certificate, I'm baptized, I must be saved. No, it doesn't count. The certificate is a nice piece of paper to have in your family memorial somewhere. There'll be a certificate for little Claire, but I hope she'll never take that certificate and say, look, I'm a Christian, God saved me. Because way back there on whatever it was, March 19th, 2017, I was baptized. No. We want little Claire to be able to grow up and say, I received a sign, a promise of God's grace that he would save me like he saved Noah in the ark from disaster. And I have come now that my mind is formed and I can think of these things and profess these things, that Jesus is the ark of my safety and my salvation. Jim, I pray your three beautiful daughters will be able to say that. What a thing to praise God and pray for, that that would be true. Jesus is the ark of salvation. His death made sure that the judgmental storm of God's wrath for sin fell on him, not on us. And therefore, we can live in the reality of his resurrection, claiming that we will be safe. We will be carried through the storm of God's judgment. 
John Calvin didn't have the same puzzlement about this passage that Martin Luther did. Calvin wrote this. He said, Noah received life out of the destruction that brought others' death when he was shut up in the tomb of an ark. So today it is, Calvin said, dying and rising with Christ is the entrance into our new life. We hope for his great salvation to be ours because we are set apart from the dying world by God's grace when we act upon it in faith. Jesus Christ is the ark of salvation. We must flee into that ark. Do you realize that if I'm preaching to you accurately and faithfully the true gospel of the cross and resurrection of Christ right now, it is the Spirit of Christ who is speaking to you, not me. That would be a fantastic, unbelievable, ridiculous claim for me to make as a man. But the Scripture makes it. The Spirit of Christ preached salvation through a man named Noah and a man named Peter and others down through the ages who have faithfully held forth that Jesus is the ark of salvation. So if you hear the call that I'm saying to you, will you stop and think hard that it's a call issued by Jesus Christ? And the question is whether you've responded to receive deliverance, pardon, eternal life from God our Savior who offers it through Jesus Christ and what he's done for you. As an unworthy spokesman for our Savior, I have only one thing to tell you. Run. Don't walk. Run to Christ. He's the only way of salvation. He's the only ark in a catastrophic storm. And the door of grace is open to that safe place. If you would seek secure shelter from the condemnation, the flood, the disaster that otherwise will come to you. In Christ, you will ride out the storm, the storm that is there today and the storm that will always be there unless you're safe in him. Let's pray together. Father, Peter expressed this text in a way that has caused us some confusion, we confess. But we pray that the very clear thing that he stated, that Jesus Christ suffered once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to you, would be seen and understood by everyone here. May we not get lost in textual arguments about technicalities or places where we say, I I just don't quite get that. May you let us see this thundering truth and bring us safe into Christ, into a wholehearted trust in him and no other as our way to God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.